Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When most people talk about the problem of consciousness, they mean trying to develop a comprehensive biological understanding of how our brains produce that familiar, albeit most difficult to precisely define, sensation of self-awareness. But that's not quite what UCLA psychologist Martin Monti means. For him, an important first step into the problem is to carefully investigate who is conscious and who is not. In particular, there's the intriguing question of to what extent we can imagine that severely brain-damaged patients in a so-called vegetative state might nonetheless be able to exhibit definite signs of consciousness. In fact, we don't have to just imagine asking those questions. We can, in certain cases at least, actually conduct experiments, which is precisely what Martin has done. We were talking about how uh, a particular philosopher who I'm going to, going to talk to shortly has long been an advocate of how the brain causes the mind and effectively stating that there's not a great deal of difference between the brain and the mind. And you were telling me that the number of students who come into your introductory classes believing that in fact there is something else besides uh, besides the brain involved in themselves and in the mind is a staggeringly high percentage. Absolutely, and keep in mind that I actually asked this question to, to, a, to an elite of students. I mean, we're at UCLA, so I, I'm, I'm asking this question to probably pretty educated students who have done several years of studies before showing up in my class. Yeah. But still, when I asked my students, and for example this year, whether they think that there's something beyond the brain that causes who they are, I would say that about 80% would say yes. That is at the beginning of my class right. in dualism. Do you, take, do you ask the question again at the end of your class? I do, and it does bring it down a little bit, but I would not presume that I can bring it down over 50-50, probably. Really? Uh, so how, how far yeah. does it come down to? About 60%? I, I would say, I would say yeah, 60. I can, I can persuade some 20% students that that's not the case. You have a 20% success rate. That's not bad. Yes, in a, in a one hour 15 <laughs> class, it's pretty good. Uh, if you just, just if you think about it, normally it's so ingrained in our culture that there is something beyond us, that there is something bigger. It so, feels so right, so natural. I can say my hands. And I often say, and you might say, and you might hear people say, my brain. But now the question is, who does my refer right. to, right? right? Who is co-referential to my? Right. Uh, I am my brain. And the kind of arguments I typically give my students go somewhere along these lines. Um, I show them, for example, that you can change your, you can break your, um, sorry, I, I lost my trainer. Hmm, you can, I, I typically try to show them how if you break your brain or if something changes in your brain, maybe you suffer a brain injury or something right. like that, that will have very profound consequences on who you are. So you can affect 
the brain, and that will very directly and in very systematic ways affect your mind or your personality. Or but everybody, your everybody's aware right. of this at some level. They're aware of taking psychotropic drugs. They're aware right. of taking even pain-killing drugs. Right. They're, they're aware of, of mm -hmm. as you say, brain lesions, people who, who mm -hmm. have serious accidents and they change into different personalities. So what, what's, what's going on in your mind? Is there some kind of compartmentalization? Is there some kind of uh, denial? What, what's, what's happening? Well, that is a difficult question because if you think about it, this intuition has been with us. It's deeply ingrained in our culture, and it has been until, I would say, very recently. And as you see, we, we take advantage of this intuition all the time in, in general life. It's something that we refer to. Um, think about movies that you go to see. N neither you or I have any problem going to see a movie where a small kid goes to sleep and wakes up in the body of a grown actor. Right. We have no problem imagining Lindsay Lohan's mind in somebody, else's, in somebody else's body. We have no problem with that. We have no problem even imagining that a foreign entity, a spirit, a demon, could inhabit my body and, and take over who I am. So this is just so deeply embedded everywhere in our culture. And as I was saying before, it's embedded in our language when we say things such as my hand, my brain. The difference is that you can change your body, anything except your brain, and still be you. I could undergo plastic surgery, I could have a better nose, I could have stronger cheekbones, I could have pointy ears, but it'd still be me. Right. The one thing I can't change without affecting who me is, is my brain. Right. So we, we cling on to this tenaciously. That's right. Um, I was going to be snide and ask if Lindsay Lohan really has a mind, but... but, uh, but That's a different <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, let, me, let me move to uh, more aspects of the popular mm -hmm. consciousness, because mm -hmm. notwithstanding what you're saying, and, and uh, I certainly agree with you 100%, um, there, there are certainly uh, many aspects to... Uh, there are certainly many reasons to believe that neuroscience is becoming increasingly popular these days. Mm -hmm. And... There's an awful lot of um, articles, there are an awful lot of uh, popularizations mm -hmm. of, uh, of what's happening in terms of cognitive science and what we can do and what we can't do and what we might be able to do. You yourself have participated mm -hmm. in the popularization of, of cognitive science. You've written articles for an Italian mm -hmm. uh, newspaper, you've, you've given many talks, you, mm -hmm. you engage quite uh, regularly with the general public. Are people getting the right message as a general rule? Are they, are they understanding what is actually happening on the cutting edge of cognitive science and neuroscience and psychology these days? Or are they missing mm. stuff? Well, I get a feeling that people mostly get a dreamy version of what is happening. Um, people get um, the sexy wording of what's happening, which often leaves out the details that are so crucial to right. what the real finding is. Uh, for example, you might, um, one headline out of a study I had published back in 2010 now was scientists speak with dead person. Really? Yes. <laughs> this was your paper? This is my own paper, yes. <laughs> now, for anyone who's listening, we did not talk to anybody who was dead. Right. Um, nothing, this couldn't have been further away from the truth, but it was more appealing probably to the writer um, it probably made a stronger impression on the audience. Was it just a headline or was it the text of the article itself? Uh, well, was this is the headline. Right. My, 
reaction to it was not to read it. Okay. Uh, because because journalists that. aren't responsible, as you would know, they're, they're, they're invariably not responsible for the headlines. So you're, it might not have been this right. guy's fault. I'm, I do not hold that single journalist responsible <laughs> for it. I'm, I'm sure that the system has led to that. Now, I myself spend a lot of time trying to explain to journalists what I think is happening. And no, who else should be doing that if not myself? I mean, it's, it's my study. I probably know, I'm probably the person who knows the most details about it and, and how to best interpret it. So I, I do spend a fair share of time trying to explain or, or maybe correct some common misconceptions right. so that then journalists who, by definition, can't be, um, can't be specialists in my discipline can then try to disseminate the best message possible. But it, it just imagine somebody telling you, well, by tomorrow morning I need a 500-word uh, article on the vegetative state. And you maybe have never written anything on the topic. Oh, these were the dead people. These were the dead people. We'll get to the dead people in a bit. <laughs> so what should they be, what should they be mm. uh, taking away? Or, or where would you recommend yeah. that they be looking for real information? If I'm a member of the general sure. public, I, I want to know what's new. What's happening in cognitive science? What's happening in mm -hmm. psychology these days? How is the field changing? What, what about our brain? How do we, mm -hmm. What do we know? What do we not know? Where can I get a non-hyped version? Where would you recommend them to go? I would typically look into pr actual press releases from the university and the scientists, him or herself. Um, many specialist uh, journals would be just as good. Science, for example, or nature, they have their own podcasts. You could, you could sit with the podcast on your, uh, on your phone and just listen to the five, ten most interesting studies either in general sciences or in neurosciences, if that's what you're really interested in. Right. I would probably get my information from that, not from uh, the more regular press. Okay. That's, that's a couple layers removed. Well, that sounds completely reasonable and, and legitimate, and, and it's, it's important for people to know where, where they can get the straight goods. Absolutely. Without, without having to deal with the hype or whatever sensationalist headlines might be selling this right. or that particular paper. Um, so I, I want to get into the vegetative state, mm -hmm. and I want to get into uh, your interest in that, but I want to mm -hmm. back up a little bit before we do that and talk about how you got into this field to begin with. Because my understanding sure. is you've had a bit of a double tack to get here. Mm -hmm. You started off in, in classical language and literature, uh, and, and then you went into uh, economics and right. social sciences, and then you wound up in neuroscience. So is there, is there any field of study that you haven't considered seriously? Uh, well, I certainly, uh, I certainly have very varied interests. If you asked me retrospectively, there is uh, a certain coherence to the path itself. Okay, so what is um, the coherence to the path? Right, so I recall very well um, so if between middle school and high school wondering whether what I was seeing was exactly the same that other people were seeing. And it might seem very simplistic, but of course I was a child at that point. Maybe and you I were was, a solipsist or something. <laughs> 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 I, I was wondering whether what I was seeing in a certain color felt the same way to someone else um, or whether it felt different, but we both learned to call the same thing by the same name. So I could see orange one way, you might see it in a completely different way, right. but we just both agreed that that is orange and we call by it By convention. Way. Right, exactly, by convention. So I was trying to, um, in a sense, wrap my head around what might have been convention and what might have been reality right. and how the two might interplay. Um, however, doing these studies, I then encountered uh, classical philosophers and this is during the period of high school transitioning into uh, classical studies. 
And uh, I found a lot of this in philosophy, and I found it particularly interesting. So philosophy of mind, but even the classical philosophers wondering what is reality? How can we ever know what is real or not? Right. All I have to know what is around me is my own senses. In a sense, I never have the benefit of being outside of my brain to appreciate what the world really looks like. And I found these arguments particularly interesting and worthy of, uh, of study. Um, somewhere along the line, maybe the more, um, the more concrete side of uh, my soul led me into... Your soul? Uh, we're going to have to get out of it. We're going to have to stop right now. I mean, <laughs> it's a figure of yeah, speech. Okay. <laughs> the more concrete aspect of my brain... <laughs> the more concrete aspect of my brain sort of led me towards uh, studying how people make choices and how we decide, um, how we take decisions when we don't know what's ha what, what is likely to happen. So choice under uncertainty. And I found particularly interesting how we had a presumption of being able to fit people's decisions into mathematical equations. I spent a lot of time writing and thinking over um, dynamical systems that would somehow explain how equilibria shifted in markets, um, how people would choose between two tacos and three ice creams. Was this classical um, economic maximizing utility functions? Right. All exactly, the rest of this exactly. Right. This, this starts from the, I guess, at least in Europe, this is the second half of the 1800s with people like Leon Walras right. uh, talking about uh, subjective, well, actually uh, expected utility. So we, yeah. we choose, we choose um, our actions based on what gives us the most, the highest um, Probable pleasure. Right. So That's all wrong, you know. All that, 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 that whole thing. It's all, it's well, all. that is my intuition. <laughs> um, I, I got extremely interested in this, okay. and uh, from there, I just uh, had exactly this intuition. I thought, but people don't really do this, right. and that's what led me to studying the mind. At that point, I, I thought, I really want to know how people actually do this, mm -hmm. and that led me to a PhD in psychology and neurosciences. And while I was doing that, that's where I started developing my interest for probably two of the deepest or more characterizing aspects of the human mind, which is uh, uh, language and consciousness, which might not be unique to us, but certainly are the most characterizing features of our cognitive system. Oh, that, that is actually an extremely coherent thread, the way you, the way you presented so, it. So, so I don't know if I'm working is, on this. Or... Hindsight is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so moving into the vegetative state and moving into your work there mm -hmm. and, and consciousness. I want to get to consciousness writ large mm -hmm. in a little bit, but I want to talk specifically about your work in minimal conscious states, sure. the vegetative state and so forth. Um, and, and tell me how you got uh, mm -hmm. particularly involved in that. Mm -hmm. And then that's... that's once, once we're there, let's, let's start defining things a little bit and talking sure. about what we're actually talking sure. about. But, but first start, give me, give me a continuation so I can understand you're thinking, okay, uh, this, the story about how people actually make choices and decisions, nah, I don't really buy that. I've got to look a little bit deeper to right. understand the, the, the human mind and, and can develop a coherent understanding of, of why people act the way that they do. Mm -hmm. And how does that motivation and, and that path lead you to something called the vegetative state? Right. So during my doctoral studies, I had the benefit of being asked to look into, in parallel with what I was doing, look into other aspects of uh, what they called cognitive neuroscience that I might have been interested in. Um, it was partly because of some requirements I had through, through my doctoral studies. 
And that allowed me to look beyond what I was doing at the time, which I still do currently in parallel with studying consciousness and patients in a vegetative state. So this was the language thing that you were working on before? I, that's right. I okay. started with, with language okay. uh, in my doctoral studies. Okay. So decision-making, the very first paper I wrote was in experimental decision-making, okay. experimental economics. And, and from there we moved into uh, how people reason. And while I was studying on how people reason, I, I, was, I was wondering whether language has, plays a, a, a deep role in allowing us to make these very complicated reasoning lines. And in parallel with this, I, I was asked as a requirement to explore other aspects of the field I might find interesting. Um, and that's what led me to finding a very small field, um, which at the time was being studied by maybe two, three people at most, um, of patients who lose consciousness. And not even having a definition of what consciousness is, at least in the scientific, um, scientific sense of a definition, I found that extremely uh, interesting. Uh, how do you know if someone is conscious? I, I wish I had a thermometer. I could put in somebody's ear and say, oh, 100, they're conscious. Uh, but we don't. And uh, the deep question is, sometimes you're called to decide if someone else is conscious. How do we do that? So for, for, if you're judging your own consciousness, it's very easy. You have access to this feeling, whatever, whatever the feeling might actually turn out to be in reality, but you have access to a feeling that is what you learn to call consciousness. It's this kind of, I don't know, self-reflection or sense of agency or all these things, sense of experiencing the world. Uh, so it's easy for you to say you're conscious. Uh, it's easy for me to say I'm conscious. What is really hard is for you to say that I am conscious, right? right? You can't. And the problem um, is that, at least, you can never be certain because you don't have access to my feelings of agency, right. and experience, etc. And so that's what got me particularly interested in this field. How can we ever get to know if someone else is conscious until the day where we develop a thermometer and then we're good? This is strikingly reminiscent uh, to your, your question as a small child about what people are right. calling the, the, whether something is really orange or, or, or what Finally, you. Finally, full can't, circle. You can't, you can't get inside <laughs> somebody's head as it, as it right. were. But, but you can go an alarmingly long way, or we're starting to mm -hmm. move in that direction, mm -hmm. which is one of the things that's so particularly uh, exciting about, about your work. So let's talk about the vegetative state mm -hmm. and, and how it links up to, to, to consciousness or aspects of consciousness or what we can probe. But let's first talk about what a vegetative state mm -hmm. is. So maybe I hear about this and I, I might be uh, uh, under the impression that a vegetative state is someone who's in a coma, but that's actually not mm -hmm. correct. So why don't you make the distinction, first of all, between, between those things Absolutely. and then move on to what a vegetative state actually is. So a, a vegetative state is a neurological condition in which one, at least one of the two cardinal elements of consciousness are affected. For example, a vegetative patient is a patient who appears awake at least in as much as his or her eyes open and close in cycles. So a, a vegetative patient gives the impression of waking up and falling asleep, uh, just like you and I do. Whether they truly wake up or fall asleep is a different question. So they do seem awake, but, uh, but they don't show any sign of being conscious of themselves, conscious of what's happening around them. So that is a vegetative state, essentially wakefulness in the absence of, of awareness. Right. Uh, a coma is... Um, a circumstance where a patient doesn't have any awareness of him or herself or their environment and also does not appear to be awake. So in a sense, you can think of coma as 
um, a step below a vegetative state. Normally, the way in which you would enter this condition is by a very severe brain injury, maybe an accident or an aneurysm, something like that. And um, a patient might get into a coma, which means the eyes are typically closed, and the patient doesn't show any sign of being, being awake, or sorry, of being aware. Um, this is very similar to what happens in general anesthesia, right? You're completely out. Right. It's as if you're asleep. In fact, people don't like calling anesthesia coma, but that's pretty much what it is from a brain point of view. So you enter a coma where you're asleep and not aware. Some patients wake up, but without recovering consciousness, right? So awake, wakefulness without uh, awareness, and that is a vegetative state. Now, some of these patients also move on to regain some level of, of awareness, and that's when they enter a minimally conscious state. So it's very easy for me to tell if a patient is in a coma or in a vegetative state, because the eyes are either open in a vegetative state, or at least open and closed, or always closed in a, in a comatose patient. What's really difficult is how do I know that a patient who's awake has regained that little bit of consciousness sufficient for me to say, ah, the patient is now, is now at least minimally conscious. Right. That's, where, that's where the real debate is. That's the debate that society is having generally about these patients. But even before we get into full-blown consciousness, one of the things that you've done which is quite intriguing is you've started to parse things a little bit and mm -hmm. say, well, let's not necessarily move into full-blown consciousness. Let's look at what people in the vegetative state might actually be doing in terms of mm -hmm. their brain, what they might be uh, feeling or seeing, or is there, any, is there anything that we can actually say is going on in their brains? Because mm -hmm. it seems to me that before, some time ago, there was a, a, a popular understanding within the, the neuroscientific mm -hmm. community that vegetative state was basically nothing was going on in the brain. Is that a, is that a, fair, Absolutely. a fair assessment? Absolutely. In fact, uh, particularly in Europe, the vegetative state has often been used synonymously with the apalic syndrome. Now, apalic from Latin means without a pallium, and the pallium being cortex. So literally, these patients were believed to not have any cortical activity. And that's why we call it the vegetative state, because the, the functions that allow the body to remain alive are, still are, are sufficiently preserved. For example, these patients are not typically on a ventilator. So when people think about mm, pulling the plug on a patient, we, there actually no, there is no plug to pull. Right, these because patients, their basic functions are functioning. Exactly. So they're alive and they remain alive. Uh, they just don't seem to express that that sense or that feeling of consciousness. So uh, there, there was a, there was a long-standing belief that these patients essentially don't have a functioning cortex. Uh, it actually turns out, I would say, you know, 10, 15 years of uh, using brain imaging to look directly into the brain and see what's happening actually told us that a lot can be going on in a brain. So a lot of activity, a lot of cognitive faculties can remain even in the absence of consciousness. For example, um, if, you, um, if you were sleeping or if a patient were in a vegetative state, you might be able to play a sound and see that the brain is reacting. So the brain might respond appropriately to sounds from the environment, for example. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that when you're sleeping or this patient, for example, in a vegetative state, is actually hearing the sound. Right? But something's a, going on. I mean, you know, right. you have a sense that something, you can't, 
you can't assume that they're actually, all the processes are the same as, as, a, as somebody who's normally awake and hearing, but you can see that there That's is right. some activity. And previously they thought there was really nothing Absolutely. going on. Right? So this was what I've always lived as the very first revolution in this field. Finding out that these brains that we thought were, you can't say empty, but that were not functioning at the level of cortex, right. actually are. Now the question is, how much right. can remain? Right. So how do you do? So first of all, what are you testing, and how do you actually do it? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, auditory stimuli mm -hmm. that you're giving mm -hmm. them. Presumably, you're you're looking at visual stimuli. Mm -hmm. You're looking at tactile stimuli. You're looking at, at, at perhaps noxious fumes or whatever it is. I don't know Absolute, exactly what's what's, what's mm -hmm. happening. You even have tests for some aspect of of language and learning. It's it's remarkable that mm -hmm. the experiments that you actually have. So tell me a little bit more about sure. about what you what you've done and and also how you've done it because that that's a that's mm -hmm. a fascinating uh, story and 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 in particular how you do it with these modern tech with fMRI and and with whatever with PET scans with mm -hmm. EEG and what's actually going on. So I would say that today we are using um, a number of different tools to try to look at brain processing in these patients. Um, the most widely employed would be electroencephalography, and this normally is a little cap that somebody can wear, and there are electrodes in this, in this cap that can, can, can capture the presence of small um, magnetic fields created by a number of neurons all working together at the same time. Um, you can also use what I use most often, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And this is a technique that rather than directly capturing some aspect of neuronal uh, function um, looks at the, at the energetic fingerprint of neuronal function. So if I use a certain part of the brain for some process, um, more, more blood is sent towards that part of the brain um, to replenish uh, nutrients and essentially bring energy. So these are two different ways of tracking brain activity. So what we do in these patients, the, very, the basic level of these experiments would be uh, to play sounds and, and analyze how differently the brain responds to a sound versus silence. And what I can say from a study like this is if the neural circuitry is functioning or not. Or maybe uh, I, can, um, I can play sentences that are in English versus just sounds that are not English. And if I do find a difference in specific parts of the brain, that allows me to tell that this brain is recognizing the difference between language as an organized type of utterances versus just just any sound. Right. And, and you can imagine making this more and more complicated. One study we did on vision was essentially a staircase starting from very simple, are, does a patient respond to light? Um, to moving on to, does a patient, um, does the brain rather of these patients respond to the presence of motion, to the presence of color? Um, does this patient recognize that certain categories of stimuli are different? For example, you can show an object, a well-formed object, versus a scrambled version of that object. Actually, some parts of our brains are particularly interested in coherent objects. And you can notice whether this part of the brain gets engaged when they see coherent objects, like a telephone maybe, or an alarm clock versus a scrambled version right. of that same thing. Right. And you can, you can keep moving on. You can show pictures of faces versus pictures of houses. There are two parts of your brain and my brain that are specially interested into representing houses or locations. Sorry, yeah, locations versus faces. And so I can show a picture of a face to a patient and see if that special part of the brain 
becomes metabolically active, for example. And that tells me that the brain is working. None of this, none of this tells me if the patient is seeing or recognizing what that image is. But do you ever get any feedback afterwards from these people? I can imagine there are some people who are in a vegetative state Mm -hmm. while you're doing these experiments and they're in an fMRI machine or or what have you. and then they regain consciousness in, in the normal. Does this ever happen that they, they come back and, and you say, hey, when I was doing this three weeks ago, did you, do you remember this? Did, right. did, did, did you ever have any opportunities to do that? or does, has that No, these are the cases that are most advertised in the media, okay. but these are actually not the cases that typically happen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and on top of that, there's an interesting question, which is if somebody tells you that they have a recollection uh, is that a real recollection? Sure. Is but, it a dream? Is the distortion of sure. what was happening? Sure. Um, so but you that, can maybe filter that out with statistics. But does does do it's, you, we don't have? I don't think we'd have sufficient numbers. Okay. How often does today. it happen? Um, people... Well, I've been working in this field for several years now, <laughs> and it still hasn't happened to me. Okay. Not in, often. In fairness, <laughs> in fairness, I typically see patients once or twice, and then um, um, either we're looking at other patients, or oftentimes. We lose track of patients in the sense that the families move away and, and we, don't, uh, we, we, we can't track them. Um, I think that where the science is today is mostly trying to take one snapshot of these patients and understand what is happening. There are other questions such as those you raise, which is how much of what happens during the stage can then influence behavior uh, at a later point if they regain consciousness. I just don't think we've gotten there yet. Right. Um, how does it work on the, uh, on the ethical side of things? Mm-hmm. So uh, my colleague Taylor and I were talking about mm-hmm. this today, actually, as we were driving back in the mm-hmm. car and we were having this uh, uh, engaged conversation about what would happen if we would get into some horrible car mm-hmm. wreck and one of us would be in a vegetative state. Um, would, would, would we be, all of a sudden, uh, how would it work in terms of of us participating, as right. it were, in these experiments, do people sign a release like they like they would mm-hmm. on uh, for their you know donating organs or something? Mm-hmm. How how does that actually happen? I would have no problem, right. by the way, if it were, if it were me. You have this for the record because I'm all in favor of science getting to the point where if I were in such a situation, right. you guys would be able to fix me, which will only happen if you do these kinds of experiments. Right, absolutely. But, <laughs> but I just want to know how how it actually works. Um, right. So as a scientist, I'm always bound to. Uh, some kind of institution that oversees and approves anything I do. Typically, they have a name that sounds like Institutional Review Board or Institutional Review Panel. And typically, universities, each university has its own panel, uh, which normally is made up of some scientists and some members of the public. So anything that I do in these patients is always evaluated before I ever do it. Right. Um, the main aim of that is to avoid circumstances where I do something that might have either negative repercussions or where there's, um, where there's any potential risk. So my studies need to show typically that there is something to be learned in the absence of any significant risk. Right. Now, the question that you're raising is who is allowed to say, yes, this patient can uh, participate. Obviously, the patient can't do that by definition, and it wouldn't be a patient eligible for my studies. Normally, there's somebody who is legally responsible. Next of kin. That's right, next of kin, or any, anyone uh, who has been uh, uh, maybe placed by a judge to be the legal representative. And I cannot make any experiment unless 
I collect the written assent of the legal representative. Okay. And, and typically, are these people, or maybe there's no typically, but let me just ask the question. Mm -hmm. Typically, are these people uh, in a situation of having been in a vegetative state for a long mm -hmm. period of time, they've, they've been like this for months, or, mm -hmm. or, 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 or is, that not, is there no typical? Um, well, um, you, can, you can look at patients uh, in, in different moments during uh, these uh, during these conditions. For example, most of what I've done so far is in chronic patients, which means patients that have been in a vegetative state for anywhere from a few months to several years. Um, a lot of these studies typically look at these chronic populations. Um, currently, however, I'm getting interested in acute patients, but this means that I'm mostly looking at comatose patients or very early vegetative state patients. The reason for that is because now that I know that even in chronic patients, so much can be going on in their brain, of course, I want to be able to take a snapshot of somebody the first day after some kind of brain injury and be able to tell what are the chances of uh, uh, recovering, what can we do to help them recover. Uh, so you can study this uh, at any point in time. Most of the literature you will find, however, is in chronic patients. So, so the idea from your perspective, mm -hmm. I'm guessing, is that if you can get some data built up of images of people who had just gone, in, gone into a vegetative state, some of those people will not last in a vegetative mm -hmm. state, and you'll be able to take a snapshot and say they will be more likely to come out, I mean, I'm looking years down the road, right? Being able to say they have a higher threshold, perhaps, of neuronal activity than some of these people who are in a chronic mm -hmm. perspective. Is that, is that the sort of thing that we're talking about, uh, roughly? Absolutely. In fact, I, what I think today is the mission of my lab is to create some kind of mechanistic understanding of the, of the physiology of consciousness. Why, why, why do we have consciousness in the first place? Why do we lose it sometimes? And, and why, why and how do some people recover it? So if I could dream, uh, what is the endpoint of this uh, segment of my research would be exactly that, that I'd have a model of, a physiological model uh, of how a brain can support consciousness, what parts of this model maybe break down following a severe brain injury, and what can I take a picture on the very first day, tell what part of this circuit might be broken, if, if a circuit is what we're talking about, right. uh, tell what parts of this circuit might be broken, maybe intervene on that part of the circuit and, and help the chances of somebody uh, actually recovering from that condition, yes. And, and what is the difference technically between a vegetative state and a minimally conscious mm -hmm. state? I might have heard these things. So I'm guessing minimally conscious state, we're moving up towards consciousness, we're Absolutely. moving up the ladder, but what, what, how would you define a minimally conscious state? Right, um, well, you would, um, in using standard clinical tools, you would be at the bedside of these patients and you would try to get them to reveal to you that they're conscious. Now, I wish I could just somehow look into their brain and feel their feeling of consciousness, right. but I can't. So what we typically do is we actually try to get them to produce any kind of behavior that would convince me that uh, the patient is conscious. For example, just, just right now, you and I, you probably have inferred by now that I, it's very likely that I'm conscious. <laughs> you, you might think, I hope so. you might think we are in some kind of matrix where I'm not really conscious, you're not really conscious, or maybe I'm part zombie. You, you might think these things, but I, I would guess that most of you 
is almost persuaded that I am conscious. All of me. All of me <laughs> is fully persuaded. <laughs> the question is, is why? Yeah. What, is, what is convincing you that I'm conscious? Probably it's the fact that I'm, I'm behaving in ways that are not entirely reflexive. I produce behavior that somehow reveals the presence of an agent, of some conscious agent behind it. And that's exactly what we do in the clinic. We go to the bedside and we ask the patient maybe to, to move a hand or to blink his or her eyes. Um, and we, we try to elicit any possible form of willful behavior. Now the problem is oftentimes people move in uh, reflexive ways. You know, you go to the doctor, the doctor taps your patella right, right. And, and your leg oh. extends. That's right. right. There's no consciousness there, it's just a circuit. Now how do you tell apart the conscious motion from the reflexive motion? That's the big problem. Uh, and actually it turns out to be pretty difficult. People can make very complicated motions that are purely the result of patterns stored in your brain. So you might often see patients uh, do very complicated things, uh, but they're entirely reflexive. I'll, I'll never forget, I had one case, this was very early on in my career, um, and I was at the bedside, this patient was, was sitting in, in, his, uh, in his chair, and he was very clearly sleeping, so it was sort of, um, um, uh, sat on one side of the chair, very clearly sleeping, and myself and my colleague then, we were preparing to do one of these tests. The patient suddenly woke up in, in that his eyes opened, stretched his arms, yawned, and then kind of sat on the other side of the chair. We could not get this patient to show any sign of consciousness, as in move your hand, blink, uh, look towards me. We, not, we could not get a sign of willful consciousness from this patient. So then there we are, left to wonder if a patient can wake up, yawn, stretch, and, and, and then find a more comfortable position in their chair. Is that a sign of consciousness? And it's I'm tough. Not, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> so I'm thinking yes. Yeah, the, the, just the yawning part. The yawning. <laughs> well, well, here, if I yawned right now, you would yawn. Oh, okay. It's just, right? Uh, I fell into that one. You were setting me up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean to, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Right? That's, what, that's what's so complicated. Right. Yet, so much of our behavior is purely reflexive. And it's great that it's reflexive. Imagine if you had to consciously back any single behavior that you do. Imagine you're driving and you have to think about everything that's happening. Maybe if you have a stick right. shift, doing things like that. It'd be overwhelming. Right. Imagine if you had to think... Right now, as you're looking at me, you'd have to consciously process my, the lines that make up my face mm -hmm. and, and say, oh, that's a face. It just hap this all just happens for you. Right. Right? So there's so much of that is happening in your brain that it's tough to tell what is conscious and what is not. But one of the things that, that, that seems to be really fascinating and a real breakthrough from the research that you've contributed to is going back to this idea that people used to believe the brain was dormant. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a vegetative state, basically, uh, nothing was going, not very much was happening in the cerebral cortex, and, and just the basic bodily functions were being supported, mm -hmm. to a situation where you've discovered varying levels of activity for different sorts of stimuli, different sorts of receivers, different sorts of things that are happening, so much so that it seems um, there what previously was looked at as almost like an on-off switch mm -hmm. is now regarded as a continuum, as a spectrum, that there's mm -hmm. a, that, that, 
that consciousness for people who are consciousness impaired or have some disorders of consciousness or however you'd like mm -hmm. to describe it, um, it's not just enough to say, well, these people are not conscious as opposed to people who are conscious. It seems like science of the last 15 or 20 years has been f steadily filling in this gap so that you can't draw the line nearly as sharply as you mm -hmm. used to. Is that, a, is that a fair way of Absolutely. assessing Absolutely. In fact, you, you've used the, the right word. It's a spectrum. It's a very wide spectrum. And we somewhat artificially draw a line between who can show that they're conscious and who can't. That's where the line is today. Now, embedded in these words is a very clear problem. What if somebody were conscious, but just could not say, I'm here, right? right? Could, maybe they have some kind of motor impairment that prevents them from moving a hand when I ask them to. Right. Or, and that's where what I, I typically think as the second revolution of brain imaging comes into play. Maybe you can't produce behavior that would convince me that you're conscious. Uh, behaviorally, so you can't overtly move or respond to command that. Right. But maybe I could ask you to willfully do something with your brain. So not just look at your brain when I'm playing sounds and see if it responds or not, but actually I would ask you, please do this in your, in your mind. And then I would actually see the fingerprint of that in your brain. Then that would be sufficient for me to infer that there is agency in you, which is what what, where we draw the line. And you have been doing these sorts of experiments. There, there are these experiments about imagining people playing tennis or, right. or telling people. So tell me a little bit more about that, because that's a fascinating story. Right. So the intuition behind that is exactly this. If, imagine a patient were lying there, perfectly conscious, but unable to move. How would we ever know, just looking from the outside, that that patient is actually conscious? It'd be impossible. Right. You, could, you could never infer, infer that there's an agent. Right. Uh, so the question has become, well, maybe, they can't do something with their, uh, in, a, in a motoric form, but maybe they can do something with their mind. And the, the, the intuition that led to this is something very simple. I could ask you to imagine performing something, uh, to imagine performing a motor behavior. Playing tennis is the perfect example. Um, just the act of imagining yourself playing tennis will activate parts of your brain that have to do with uh, motor behavior will activate motor plans in your brain. So if I can just tell you with a one second cue, tennis, and then, and just, and then just, just stay there and wait. And see that after, of course, I've asked you, when I say tennis, please imagine playing tennis. And then see that your brain actually activates in all these areas that have to do with motor control. And that tells me that you, A, heard what I said, understood what I said, had enough memory available so that when you heard the word tennis, you knew that that meant I'm asking you to imagine playing tennis, and then could willfully engage in an activity. Imagine playing tennis. And you've done these sorts of experiments. We, we've done these experiments. Uh, it actually turns out that in about 20% uh, of patients who we think or who appear unconscious at the bedside, uh, which is to say patients who can't who can't show a, a willful motoric response sufficient to persuade us that the patient is conscious, actually, they can do things with their brain. So this leaves us in this, in this slightly uncertain position where the tests that we thought were so good at understanding if somebody is conscious or not are still very good, but, but have this little gray area. These behavioral tests you were talking about That's before. That's right, exactly. Because you've been able to push the boundaries considerably exactly. using these, these medical diagnostic, these fMRI techniques and so forth. Because exactly. to me, when I, when I hear you describe this, if I think somebody's unconscious, 
uh, or not conscious or whatever, <laughs> whatever the right sure. word is. Um, and then I'm told, well, when Martin says, explains to them this, this experiment and says tennis and, I, and I'm able to successfully uh, map the, using fMRI what's mm -hmm. going on in their brain, the motor areas are showing up just as if, just as, sure. as, as fully conscious people who, who have the same experiment happen to them. I think that's extremely analogous to this thermometer that you were talking about before. I'm thinking they're conscious. I don't have the slightest doubt whatsoever about that. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a misdiagnosis, I guess you could say, or or a lack of lack of full diagnosis from behavioral conditions for those twenty percent or whatever mm -hmm. it is people. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a, a huge enhancement in our understanding of what's actually going on with these people. Yeah, it's not a misdiagnosis in the technical sense, meaning the doctor who did the diagnosis did everything right. Did everything right. Sure. Um, it's more a limit of right. the way in which we're using behavior as a proxy for consciousness. Right. So you could have consciousness and not have behavior, right? And sure. we'd miss that. So sure. in a sense, this, this technique allows us to, to make us even better. Right. In those gray areas, we, we're now a little bit better than before. Um, you could, however, imagine that our test would fail if you were perfectly conscious but couldn't move and couldn't understand language. Sure, it's a, it's, so, it's a limit. To, right. it, 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 it's, a, it's certainly sufficient to demonstrate consciousness, but exactly. it's, it's not a necessary proof exactly. of consciousness. So in a sense, a positive result, if somebody can engage in tennis when we ask them, that must mean they're conscious. Right. But if somebody can't, Doesn't necessarily it's just mean. a negative result. It right. could be that they didn't hear us, that they couldn't right. hear us, that they didn't want to do it, right. they were sleeping. Right. So. You know, they don't play tennis, they don't even know They that. don't know how to play tennis. <laughs> I, I should say, I've been asked this many times, even if you don't know how to play tennis, you still get those activations. <laughs> okay. I, I want to talk about how we read the signals, because you were talking before about fMRI uh, as, a, as, a, as a method of being able to indicate blood flow, which corresponds to more uh, neural mm -hmm. activity in a particular region. But of course, uh, we all know that the brain is active, well, certainly for fully conscious people all the time, but, but, but we definitely need to have uh, some baseline from mm -hmm. which to subtract from uh, ambient neural activity so that we can really identify those, those things. So uh, that's my uh, understanding. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so, there, there is, so this part I knew, but what I hadn't really thought about until I, I read some of your work is that there's a tremendous uh, amount of attention that has to go into finding the right sort of questions, the right techniques mm -hmm. to be able to experimentally assess that, that baseline. Can you, can you talk uh, a little absolutely, bit more absolutely. about that? And the problem is actually analogous to the problem I was mentioning before of, of recognizing what part of motor behavior is, is conscious and what part is reflexive. Right. Your brain, as you correctly said, is, is active all the time. You're using all of your brain all of the time. <laughs> when you're sleeping, your brain is active and doing things. Right. Um, notwithstanding the 10% the 10, uh, the 10 argument, which, as everybody knows, is, is completely... I don't know the 10% argument. That we only 10%. use 10% of our brain. Oh, I thought, I thought you meant only, that I only have uh, a oh, brain no. that's active 10% <laughs> of the time or something like that. No, it's, it's a, good, it's a good, good estimate, but it's off by 90%. That's okay. what most people would say. Um, so notwithstanding that, uh, your brain is active and doing things all the time. Most of them are, are beyond your control. You have no say into, right. into whether this or that part of your brain activates. Right. So the way we've been using these techniques to do, um, to do these studies is twofold. One is what I was mentioning before. If I play two different sounds to you, for example, just noise and then language, I can, I can subtract the basic 
uh, activities, uh, activity of your brain that result from just hearing stuff from what it takes for your brain to recognize language. And if these two, if there is any difference between these two, right. this tells me that your brain has done something slightly different in the second one, and that tells me that your brain is recognizing language as something. So this is one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, which is the way in which we do it with tennis, it has a different philosophy. It's in that case, I give you exactly the same stimulation, but I ask you to do two different things with it. So your brain is receiving exactly the same amount of, of environmental stimulation, mm -hmm. but you're doing different things with it. There's one experiment that, that we recently published that went something like this. Uh, you're in the MRI machine, and all that you're hearing is one word every second. So you're hearing sequences of 26 words, and some of these words repeat. And either you hear these words, and just before I tell you, just listen to everything, and then you hear 26 words, and you're just, just hearing these words. Or I tell you, count the number of times a given word repeats. And then I play the same words. And, and you hear exactly the same words, but now you're actively monitoring right. for one. You're doing something else. Exactly. So the stimulation is identical. What's coming in is identical. But the if you are there, if you're, if you're complying with my instructions, the mental activity that is ongoing is completely different. Because right. you're, you're, you're remembering, you're monitoring, you're counting. Right. So if I see a difference between a condition in which the stimulation is identical, but your mindset is different, then uh, I, can, I have a fingerprint of you willfully doing something. Clever. Let's move on to, to consciousness as a, as a whole. You're using the vegetative state you're using these minimally conscious states and the whole spectrum of, mm -hmm. of consciousness from people who have suffered these egregious conditions and, mm -hmm. and are uh, certainly not fully conscious as we understand it, um, as a probe to be able to get a, a clear sense of where the threshold of consciousness mm -hmm. is, what's actually going on, whether it's really a continuum, if it's a continuum, where, does, where do you draw the line, where do things emerge, all of these sorts of things. Um, but you also have some ideas in terms of, uh, of clarifying that a little bit more in terms of connections uh, mm -hmm. in, in the brain and using some aspects of mathematics, mm -hmm. namely, namely graph theory mm -hmm. and so forth. This seems like a, uh, a really intriguing idea to me uh, that, that gives, again, a, some form of a testable hypothesis or a potentially testable hypothesis to probe consciousness. I mean, after all, consciousness is one of these things, as you know uh, far better than I, that people mm -hmm. have been talking about for millennia. I mean, this is oh, not yes. exactly a new thing. But what's really fascinating is you're starting to develop empirical and theoretical procedures where you can actually do experiments and come up with something. Now, no one's saying that it's going to be necessarily the holy grail tomorrow, right. but you can certainly contribute in quite a practical definite way towards building data towards a deeper understanding of things. So maybe you can tell me a little mm -hmm. bit more about, about this research. Absolutely. So of course the ultimate goal is to have a scientific definition of what consciousness is. Today the best definition comes from an Italian scientist, Giulio Tononi. Is that a coincidence that it was Italian uh, scientist, you think? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Who says that consciousness is that thing that goes away when you go into dreamless sleep and, and comes back when you wake up in the morning. That is pretty much as good a definition as we have in scientific terms. We don't have um, a tangible way, uh, of, of a quantitative way, what, what scientists like, right? Numbers. We like numbers that are, they're, they're, they're factual, they're not under our own subjective um, lens. Um, but we don't have any of that. 
So a big effort that is happening today, and, and the studies you mentioned are exactly part of that, are can we somehow quantify consciousness? Can we, can we assign numbers to brain processes and, and somehow find this thermometer that I've been talking about, this, this way of quantifying what's happening in the brain? Yeah. One way of doing it is to imagine your brain as a network of nodes that talk to each other. So it, it's, it's a network, um, um, not, not too different from what the internet might be or what Facebook might be. It's, it's a network of right, connecting nodes that talk to each other. And uh, what we've done is we've tried to quantify how information flows in the brain. After all, the brain is really about information exchange between different areas, different neurons, and processing of this information. So the question we asked is if we, if we took someone who's perfectly healthy and they undergo anesthesia, so we artificially literally knock them out. Right. Um, how does information processing change in the brain? How does this network, what, how do, do the properties of the network change? And there was something that we found that I think was uh, very striking, and I found it profound just because it matches a theoretical proposal by this Italian scientist. Um, I, I found it remarkable that, that the data spontaneously told us exactly <laughs> what, what the scientist, what a um, sort of, told us exactly something that matches a, a, a one of the many theories of consciousness we have. And the main idea is that when we lose consciousness, the information exchange becomes extremely inefficient. One, one analogy that I've used uh, to explain this is, 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 at least in terms of neural function, you could, could think the difference between being conscious and unconscious being the same difference that there is between making a straight drive from Los Angeles to New York versus going from one point to the other by bus, sort of zigzagging your right. route from right. you know, in between several, uh, several different towns and hopping on and off different buses. So what really, the, the one signature that we found of unconsciousness is a very inefficient informational exchange. And so that led to the thinking that maybe consciousness is not quite a place but is a mode, is a way in which information is exchanged, and particularly information from different parts of the brain are, are brought together and integrated. And when you say inefficient, what do you, what do you mean by that? You, you mean something analogous to the zigzagging that's, business, that's right. but what, what more specifically, more concretely do you mean? Sure, imagine I, I, I wanted to, to give you, um, um, I had a little note in my pocket and I wanted you to read it. Yeah, I could do this. Right. And, and that would be extremely efficient. It would be from me to you, you'd have it. Right. Alternatively, I could, give, I, could, I could give my note to someone else. And I could go around. I could go around, it could right. go to a friend of yours, and eventually it would arrive to you. A, a much more inefficient way of exchanging communication. So we mean, you mean just uh, distance measures in terms of, I have a, a region of the brain here that wants to talk to a region of the brain here, mm -hmm. and it's just not taking the shortest path. There. Yeah, exactly, that, that's exactly. it's not taking the shortest path. It, it's forced to go around through different areas of the brain in order to reach its ultimate goal. And the hypothesis is it's forced to go around these other areas because those other areas aren't sufficiently active? Is this the idea? That's, or? A, that's a very good question. The working hypothesis is that what's happening is that there's a certain circuit in the brain that allows for long-range communication to happen very efficiently. And this is a circuit that goes from particular areas of our cortex uh, through the thalami, which are two uh, nuclei, two sort of nut-shaped nuclei at the very middle of your brain. And, and these circuits from cortex to the thalami to cortex are what allow very efficient information exchange from, different, uh, from areas that are very far away from each other. 
It's kind of a, like a short. Is this so? This is using the, as it were, the three D aspect of the brain exactly. that is coming in like that. Um, uh, well, not only the three D, but just the the fact that the way in which your brain is wired is that there's a direct connection from cortex to the thalamus and from thalamus to other parts in cortex. And when you say direct connection, are we also talking? So I don't know enough about this. I mean, I'm gonna have to use analogies because that's all I got. Uh, are we talking like the? The width of pipe, as it were, or are we um, talking as well? The num number of pipes is probably a better way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's not only geographically where they are, it's how strong right. the, the, it, the that's right. how much the throughput is, as exactly. it were, from place to exactly. place. And so one current theory is that there's a specific part of this, these nuclei called thalami that um, are particularly, they receive and, and reciprocate connections to the frontal part of your brain and the very posterior part of your brain. And the circuit from the back of your brain to thalamus to the front of your brain and back is what allows information from very distant parts of your brain to, to be pulled together at the same time. And in fact, integration is, is the, the word that people typically use. So people today, at least a segment of scientists, think of consciousness as integrated information, being able to bring together uh, information from very distant parts of your brain and, and put it together to create more information that you started with. And according to some people, that's what consciousness is. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, um, I have a continuum of uh, individuals who have very little activity going on in their cortex to individuals who have a lot of activity mm -hmm. going on in their cortex. And at some point, I can say that for those individuals who have a lot of activity in their cortex, or at some point in mm -hmm. their cortex, there's enough going on that connections can be made. There's some mm -hmm. emergent structure, a threshold, mm -hmm. or something that's mm -hmm. passed on that, uh, that connections are sufficiently, uh, sufficiently facilitated mm -hmm. that, that we can enter this new level that we call consciousness. Would that be something like what we're I talking about? I would very slightly rephrase that, very slightly. Rather than saying there's more or less activity in cortex, um, it's just that the activity in different parts of the brain might be more or less connected to okay. each other. So you could have, it is conceivable, to have a perfectly preserved cortex that doesn't have these long-range connections and so would make you unconscious. There's one famous case that I think has puzzled most of the scientists in the domain of uh, vegetative state and disorders of consciousness. There's a case was published in 1999, I believe, and a lady who was in a, in a very chronic um, vegetative state. Uh, my recollection that this might have been between five and 10 years. Every now and then, she said individual words. So she was passing that threshold at some point. Well, probably. Or maybe that she was part always. Of, well, that right. part of cortex that, that has to do with language was still active in an insular way. And so it could still produce behavior. But because there wasn't this, this integration of information, right. it, consciousness never arose. It never, a functioning cortex is not sufficient to, 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 to allow consciousness to arise. Right. You, you need to have this integration. So you need to have the regions, you need to have the strength of connections, the, the circuitry, right. if you will. Exactly. And both of these things can be modeled, presumably, by using some mathematical structure, weighting exactly. functions, networks, circuitry. Absol uh, absolutely, and, yes. And, and so there's, a, there's, there's possibility in the future to flesh out a more comprehensive description of this architecture using various mathematical techniques. Exactly. What, what we've been doing right now is exactly attempting a mathematical description of how a brain network 
changes during in and out of consciousness. And, and of course now we're trying to apply this to patients right. to see whether we can distinguish systematically patients who have had some kind of similar brain injury, very severe brain injury, but still some might be conscious and some might not. So I wanted to ask you this. So next, next steps for you in terms, you mentioned the, the, the people who you wanted to look at people who had acute, I don't mm -hmm. know, I can't remember what it is, but who would just come into the vegetative Com state. Comatose patients okay. or acute vegetative patients, right. yes. So that's one area and you've explained why. Are mm -hmm. there, what other sorts of experiments are you anxious to pursue? Well, um, I think the term I've been using most with uh, uh, the researchers in my lab and the students in my lab, in my lab is a mechanistic understanding of what's happening. Um, we have correlations. We can, we can see that numbers change in different states. What I would really want is I'd, I'd really want to be able to draw some boxes and arrows and give numbers and weights to how different boxes have to talk to different parts of the brain. And if I and understand that if I cut the circuit here or there, then I'm going to induce unconsciousness. Which, of course, if you flip it around, it if I notice that the circuit is compromised in certain places, I can try to intervene on it. So right. if only we could get this kind of mechanistic understanding of what is the physiological fingerprint of consciousness, then I could come up with ways for reigniting it. Maybe it wouldn't always work. Maybe you could, I could imagine certainly cases where the system is just so compromised that, that there's nothing we can do. For example, if the pipes were literally too compromised, then there'd be nothing I could reignite. Right. But if the pipes were not too compromised, maybe there's some way of facilitating the return of function. Right. Right. And, and, and related to this, the more work we do here, presumably the better our diagnostic ability will be to right. determine whether or not people actually have much more consciousness than we've given them credit for, as, as we, can, we can probe them using not only these techniques, but the architecture and the formalism that you've, you've developed mm -hmm. in time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking not tomorrow perhaps, sure. but, but, but down the road. And, and one can speculate and imagine, wouldn't it be nice if we were in a situation where somebody who we thought previously was not conscious, not only were we able to have some measure of assessment of their level of consciousness, which mm -hmm. was non-zero, but then we could imagine brain-machine interfaces and other things right. to be able to actually further assist them in, in being able to communicate in, in some ways with us or something. Uh, ab absolutely. Um, certainly we're getting better and better at at least estimating how much brain function is left. Uh, I, would, I would not ever think that we'd, we'd find out that all patients that we think are in a vegetative state are in fact conscious. I, right. I would I'd feel fairly safe in saying sure. that that's a very small minority. And, and as I said, we're getting better and better at understanding who's conscious or not. And, and the more we can develop these techniques, the better we will be at saying, no, no, this person has some level of consciousness, this other does not. Um, but of course, the, as one of the steps that, that in fact, people are doing right now, and I was involved in a, in a large European grant for th four years, trying to look at how we could use brain-computer interfaces for these patients to at least regain a little amount of um, ability to interact with their environment. Imagine if, you know, now we know that some patients can imagine playing tennis, for example. And this, this also applies to patients who we know are conscious, but have completely limited mobility. In these minimally conscious patients, you shouldn't think of them as, you know, like you and I. Mm -hmm. These, they fluctuate in and out of consciousness. Um, so maybe just by putting a little, a little machine on their head or some electrodes that, 
maybe they could train a computer to recognize different patterns of brain activity right, and right. turn on the TV, turn off the TV, call someone, say I'm hungry, say yes or no to questions. Right? People are working very intensely on that and I was part of, um, of one of these efforts and, uh, and there's a lot to do but, but some results are coming out. Great. I want to ask you one more thing before we mm -hmm. leave this topic and that is um, as you're talking about developing a deeper understanding of the mathematical structure of this network architecture and, mm -hmm. and so forth, um, do you find yourself moving towards a situation where people in your lab can collaborate with mathematicians who have some understanding of uh, some other sophisticated models that may or may not be applicable? Is there, is there room for some interdisciplinary mm -hmm. activity that's going on? Or, or is it the case that right now at least most of these models are, 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 don't require that, mm -hmm. that sort of interaction? I think it's necessary. Science has become so interdisciplinary in the last 20 years. Uh, particularly cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience. I couldn't do any of what I'm doing today without uh, the input from computer scientists, mathematicians, and statisticians. Uh, as, as we've been just, just saying, um, graph theory, which is a branch of mathematics that has, right. there's no reason why that should be, uh, why, why there should be an interaction between that and psychology or neurosciences. In fact, it turns out to be an extremely helpful way of thinking about the brain. So it seems to me there's no doubt that particularly in these complicated questions, but I would even say across the board in the field of brain studies, um, it is becoming more and more interdisciplinary. Great. Do you play tennis, by the way? I do. Because it just keeps coming up over and over again. And I, I should say... It could have been golf. It could have been... You know, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm, however, not the one who invented the tennis. Sure. But you, you're certainly not reluctant but to But I made great use of it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend who actually did the same task, but imagining... He didn't tell me until after. Yeah. Imagining uh, banging his hands on a piano, which he didn't know how to play, but yeah. it worked out pretty well. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd like to, actually one more question that has occurred to me before I switch gears a little bit. So this may have nothing to do with, uh, with, with, with most of what we're talking about, but since I have you here, I thought I'd ask. So again, as a layperson, I hear about uh, doctors deliberately putting people into a coma, mm -hmm. I, 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 just as a, as a medical technique, which is one of these things that I just, I'd never heard of before. Is that, is, is there any relevance at all to that sort of, um, that sort of medical procedure and, and aspects of the sorts of things that you're looking at mm -hmm. in terms of getting some measure as to uh, when people are, are fully conscious or when they're not fully mm -hmm. conscious or, or what's going on there. Is there any link at all to any of this stuff? Well, people have been trying to develop ways um, to make sure that, uh, that patients who are undergoing anesthesia are actually unconscious. And, and people have been developing little machineries that try to read off from the brain uh, and give an indication of whether someone who has been put in a, in a coma or, or anesthesia is actually conscious. Um, so in a sense, people have been using those situations to address similar questions to those I have been addressing. But except for the study where I actually looked at perfectly healthy people who are undergoing anesthesia, right. um, there are some different questions that I think they are asking that I, I have not been asking. Sure. What's the difference? I mean, why do people, again, this may be going outside, but I don't know anything about this. So why would a doctor put someone in a coma rather than, what, what's the point of that? What are they actually trying to do as opposed to use anesthetics? What, do you know? Uh, I, I think the two things are actually the same from the point of view of the brain. It's just not, um, uh, it's not nice to tell people who are about to undergo surgery, we're going to put you in a coma. Okay. 
<laughs> now, there are several different ways and different agents that you can use to put someone in a coma, right. but from a brain function point of view, sure. a very interesting paper came out, I would say probably three, four years ago, uh, showing that from, the, from a brain function point of view, the two are oh, almost coma. identical, yeah. Okay. So now I'd like to switch gears, if I may, unless there's something you'd like to add about any of this. Have, I, have we covered uh, this reasonably well, we have, anything? Yes. Okay. So I, I want to move to uh, another area of your research, which is equally fascinating, mm -hmm. uh, which you had alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. namely um, the, the interrelation between language and thought. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something which you had uh, talked about doing as part of your, part of your PhD thesis, right. I guess. Um, and presumably also we're concerned about as a small child. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I've just been very fascinated with language itself. And so, uh, so let me ask you just to, mm -hmm. to you give me a rundown of the history of some of these, these quandaries that have, uh, have mm -hmm. bothered us over the ages and, and some aspect of your work before I probe you a little bit further. <laughs> of course. Well, let me put it this way. Um, we have been arguing and we, I mean, humans. humans. <laughs> Thank you. We've been, we've been thinking about this for a long time. Aristotle already has a position on that. Plato does too, uh, on, on whether ideas exist in our brain or whether we acquire them somehow. And uh, more recently, people have been making uh, a sort of inference that I think goes along these lines. We are extremely special in that there's little doubt that the ways in which we are manipulating our environment are uh, very unlike most other species that exist on this planet. The kind of things we can do, sending rockets into space, uh, putting, uh, putting things that orbit the Earth so that you, you and I can talk even sure. though we are thousands of miles of, of distance. Creating bad television shows, it, all those things. For example, <laughs> for example. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a certain tendency by which people tend to associate these unique things that we can do with another unique aspect of our brain, which is language. Um, we can talk about several very elaborate communication systems of other animals, um, but under some definitions, uh, no other species has language the way we do. Certainly, no other, no other species uses language for the particularly idiosyncratic things we use it for, mean comments on YouTube or expressing excitement about going to see a movie with a young girl we just met. I don't know, something like that. Uh, most other species use language in a very concrete way that has to do with the, their rapport with the environment right. and safety and, and social, and so exactly right. right. Um, so a lot of people keep wondering whether the reason we can do all these unique things is because, at least in part, our brain is very unique and that it has this unique um, capacity. Um, and so people have been looking at this uh, I would say in the last 100 years in the domain of uh, linguistics, psychology, of course philosophy, well, even longer than that. Um, and um, in, the, in the 1800s, uh, people started appreciating it, appreciating a possible role of language, which would be something along the lines of a formative aspect of our brain. So the thoughts you can have you can only have them because you speak a certain language. And, and if you spoke a different language, your thoughts would be different. Uh, the point of view there usually has this approach. You don't interact with the world directly. You interact with the world through your language. So just in the same ways in which 
your eye, the lens in your eyes is, is an interface that you can't get out of between right. you and the world. In some way, language is your interface with the world. So right. you, categorize, you organize the world, you organize um, uh, um, light uh, wavelengths, you organize them in certain categories because that's what your language gave you. This is an argument that people do very often. It's often referred to as the Worfian hypothesis. And, and it literally states that you have the thoughts you have because you have a certain language. Now, other people, and I find myself in, in the other camp, um, actually think that you know, the world is there, we interact with it through, uh, through biology, which is to say through, through our sensing organs, uh, and then we use language to express the thoughts that our brain can have. Right. Um, and, and this is a very, very heated debate currently. Um, certainly there's one aspect of it that has captured my uh, interest, which is um, the fact that one unique aspect of our brain is our ability to understand hierarchical dependencies. For example, things that have structure, that have order. Just, just think of language. You can't put words randomly one after the other and, and make a meaningful statement. The same is true in math. You can't randomly put algebraic signs one after the other and say something meaningful. Right. Uh, you can't randomly put notes one after the other and have a pleasing uh, melody. They all have structure. So the question to me is, the structure that exists in math, in music, in logic, does it have any, um, does it have any connection to the structures that we have in language? So, so if I can try to react to that and distill it or rephrase it, mm -hmm. and, and let me know if I'm saying this right. Um, there's an argument as to whether our, our language is structured by our thoughts, or whether thoughts are structured exactly. by our language. And uh, you're looking at specific ways of trying to actually probe this. I want to get to this in, sure. in, 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 uh, in the specifics very shortly. But before I do, I want to ask you a personal question, because you talked about your personal motivations mm -hmm. and so forth. You are somebody who is a native Italian speaker. Mm -hmm. You speak English with uh, well, alarming, alarmingly high <laughs> levels of eloquence and fluency. Um, do you find yourself, just a personal, subjective, non-rigorously scientific view, do you find that you have somewhat different thoughts? Do you find that you are maybe even a somewhat different person in some level when you're speaking Italian as opposed to when you're speaking English? Or do you find that you're just Martin and, and you're Martin translated into Italian, you're Martin translated into right. English, you're Martin translated into whatever else right. that you happen to be speaking. Do you personally have, have, uh, have a sense one way or the other? <laughs> well, um, when I swear during football matches, it comes more naturally in Italian. Sure. But short of that, um, my thoughts feel pretty similar. But this is pure introspection, so unsubstantiated un But I'm, I'm asking you your particular view. I, I feel... It never happens to me that I can think something in one language and can't think exactly the same thing or can't understand the same concept in a different language. Okay, but that's a slightly different question. So, but do you think differently in one language uh, as opposed to another language? Or, 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 or is, that, is that not, not, I, not the I case? do not feel any difference. Right. Now, whether that is a, is, is a trustworthy index of what is actually happening. It's an course. answer to my question. Uh, you, can't, you can't be held responsible for a generalization when I ask you a very specific question. Because it seems like, the reason I'm asking you this is, uh, that seems like, subjective though it, though it is, that's a concrete instantiation of one side of this particular sure. coin. That you think, no, 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 I have all sorts of thoughts, 
these thoughts are independent of language, mm -hmm. and then they come out in different languages. I am Martin, Absolutely. I have thought whatever, who knows how you can exactly quantify it or qualify it, there may be some, there's some structure to it presumably, mm -hmm. and then I can express it in Italian or I can express it in English, and that's this idea of the, the thought having primacy over the language. Exactly. Whereas the other view would be, no, 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 I actually am somewhat of a different person somehow, the language molds and, and affects my, my thoughts. So I've got your bias coming out here. Um, so I should say my bias is data related. I don't know if I went into this debate with a specific wish one way or another. Fair enough. I now find myself informed by Fair enough. You're an open-minded individual. You want to see what the data will show you. You're a rigorous scientist. Right. I never meant to claim anything to the contrary. So <laughs> bias, I get to eliminate, I get to edit that from the, from the, <laughs> from the, from the tape. Um, but Again, this is a debate which has gone on for eons and eons and eons. People have talked about it, but a fascinating thing is, as I cut you off, because you were going to tell us this, but mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to say something, right. so I, I cut you off. Um, we can now get some sense of quantification of what's happening by looking at these structures that you talk mm -hmm. about, looking at these hierarchies. So tell me more about sure. those specifically. Uh, you make an analogy between arithmetic and the structure mm -hmm. of language and then how you go looking for these sorts of things sure. and what you actually do. Um, very simple example that I actually have used in a slightly more elaborate form, but to look at this. Um, think of the sentence, uh, John kissed Mary, um, and, and the sentence, Mary um, kissed John. It, these two sentences have this, a similar relationship than 5 minus 3 and 3 minus 5 exactly the same tokens in, in each of these expressions um, has a certain position and the position it occupies um, is something that allows us to infer meaning and, and, and within each pair the meanings are extremely different right who's the agent and right. who's kissing who and right. whether the number that results John is, or Mary it's a exactly <laughs> it might be very different according to the situation it might imply different things now the question to me is the fact that we recognize this difference the fact that we are sensitive to the position in which tokens appear in, in, in expressions. Um, does disability in math, for example, derive from the ability in language? So we've looked at this uh, in healthy volunteers. Uh, we, we put them in an MRI machine and, and we took pictures of their brain, um, uh, rather of the metabolism of their brain, while they were solving language problems. So while they were using their language um, faculties, to understand the, um, the relationship between different tokens in a sentence. And we took pictures of their brain while they were doing similar problems, but in math. Uh, a simple example might be this. Um, I could tell you X gave Y to Z, and then say Z was given Y by X, and then ask you, do, are these two circumstances, do, do, do these two circumstances express the same state of affairs? And you say, yeah, of course, it's the same, the same person is giving something to, to someone. Right. Uh, but then I could do something very similar in math. I could ask you, x plus y is greater than z. Is that the same as z minus y is smaller than x? And you know, you'd think about it and then you'd say yes. So in a sense, in both cases, you're, you're exercising this um, syntactic sense. Once it's applied to language, once it's applied to math. And now the question is, uh, at least the way we framed it, if our sense of syntax in math comes from the sense of syntax in language, that we ought to see the same parts of the brain that you use to understand syntax in language. We, we should see it also when you're thinking of these uh, algebraic problems. Right. Turns out, not the case. 
Yeah. Turns out the parts of your brain that you use for language get used for language, of course. Um, but they do not get used for a similar uh, task in the domain of, uh, of algebra. And this is fairly surprising, uh, but it works very well with um, data showing that patients who lose language, uh, so-called aphasic, so they are, they're enabled, if you, if you ask them, if you tell them John kiss Mary, they're enabled to understand who is the agent and who's the patient. Um, they can still do math pretty well. Right, so, so, so different parts of the brain have been damaged. And, of the brain, that's right. And so what, is this, what does this imply about this question of language, mm -hmm. structuring thought or thought structuring mm -hmm. language, and, and, and why? What, can, what sort of conclusions or micro-conclusions or sure. suggestions can you draw from, from this experimental data? I haven't looked at this problem from two or three different points of view, so in math, uh, in logic, um, and now we're looking at it in, in music. It seems to me that language is, uh, is somewhat insular, meaning language is, is a part of our brain, and, and it, does, it does language. And in a sense, uh, I, I say it, and I also almost find myself surprised that I have to say it. Nobody would think that the parts that you use for, for seeing, you would also use for smelling. Right. Right? It seems, I mean, it'd be strange. That's just not how our brain works. So... Uh, it seems strange that I have to make this point, but as you said, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a debate that keeps going on and in fact keeps returning. Um, the parts of our, brain, of our brain that we use for language are used for that uh, and are fairly specialized for that. And then these other types of syntaxes or structures uh, get actually worked out in different, very different parts of the brain. Have we been able to do anything similar, and I have no idea mm -hmm. how, but I'm just going to ask the question. Have we been able to do or have we done anything similar with other animals? I mean, you, you, you talk mm. about language being particular to man, and I'm thinking, have, can anybody put a whale in an MRI? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, is, 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 is there any way that we can, we can look at other members, uh, certainly monkeys, presumably, but, uh, but uh, can we look at other members of the, uh, of the animal kingdom and, and think about ways of applying diagnostic techniques sort of like this, and, and is, that, is anybody thinking about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Is, isn't, that is exactly the, the, the right question. So I look at people who have language, have math, and see whether the two are in, in a certain relationship to each other. Um, interesting questions include animals who don't have language the way we do. What capacities do they have in math or, or in logic, for example? It turns out that fish, for example, can do transitive inferences. So, no. you know, you can say, hey, no. are you okay? <laughs> fish? Fish can do transitive inferences. In, in type of fish? Is there like a really smart fish? What, what? It is a very smart fish. I must say, the transitive inference, however, was based on relationships of dominance. So that's something um, of hierarchy within, within a school. So that's something very relevant to them. But a fish can observe two other fishes interacting. Um, I, I'm imagining that in their brain they're working out who's the dominant. Um, I don't know. Nobody has asked them. Uh, but then, as a consequence, when they get put in the tank with one of these two fishes, they know exactly where they belong in the hierarchy. So making this a transitive inference, right? Yeah. Uh, Bill is taller than Bob, Bob is taller than Mary, therefore. Yeah. Um, so animals can do that. A lot of animals can do pretty interesting things with math. Uh, they certainly can count with low numbers. Um, for example, animals 
um, let's see, you can put two boxes with maybe two raisins on one side and, and one raisin on the other side and show them these two boxes, then cover them up so that they can't see how many raisins are in it. Take one raisin from one side, move it on the other one, and they will go on the side that now has two. So they understand addition, so to speak. You can also make controls. For example, you could have five raisins on one side, two on the other side, take one, move it, and they will still go to the one that has more raisins. So at least with low numbers, they can count. Sure. There's some evidence that they can actually go beyond four, five, six, up to 10 or more. So, uh, and, and they can do some uh, types of algebra. Now, no. well, th this, the example I just gave you is, is addition or subtraction. Oh, that algebra. I thought, I oh, thought, yeah. I thought you meant oh. representative algebra. I, I'm thinking <laughs> solving quadratics or something. I think nobody has found a way to ask them how to do an, an integration or something okay. like that. But same thing you can ask with children pre-linguistic. It's not quite right to say pre-linguistic because sure, they, they, they have it there, right, hardwired. Right, right. They, they might not express it. Right. And, and children actually, right, <laughs> <laughs> they can actually do the same similar tasks. So even way before they ever express any language, um, they can they appreciate addition, subtraction. They get surprised if you pull one thing off, and then maybe you have two objects. You pull one off, and then you pull down the curtain. There's still two objects. They get extremely surprised by that. Okay, so let's get back to this idea of language and and thought. One, so one one question is. You, you, you talk about how you're doing these experiments in terms of syntactic structures and mm -hmm. you're making analog, uh, an, uh, analogous expressions in arithmetic and in logic. And you also talked about music, that, sure. that you're thinking about experiments now mm -hmm. to be able to uh, uh, measure the brain, the brain activity um, in terms of the nested syntactical structure of language and some kind of analogous nested exactly. syntactical structure of music. I have no idea what that means, analogous <laughs> nested, nested syntactical structure of music. What, what are we talking about? Um, well, if you ask somebody who, who does music theory, they will say that it has to do with patterns of tension and relaxation. So, for example, if you play a scale, you get, right. you get from a C, you get to a B, and then you're sort of waiting for the C to happen. And oh, you have, oh, I see. Exactly, right. and you have this relationship of expectation. Right. No different than the type of expectation that you form as somebody is talking. You form expectations on possible transitions, what, what the next word might be, and, and things like that. Okay. Um, so this led people to think that we might be building similar uh, syntax, similar representations to music as we do in language. Uh, linguists often build these trees that where at the end of, so these are upside down trees where you start, where a sentence is divided in several branches and the way in which these branches connect express hierarchy. For example, if I say the dog barks, the dog will be connected to each other. And then the sum of these two will be connected to barks. Think of another example um, that makes it clear in, uh, in motor actions. If, um, if you want to eat something, you need to bring a spoon to a plate and then the two together to your mouth. So it doesn't work in any other way. Right? So there's a hierarchical dependency there. The spoon has to go to the food first, right. and then sp uh, f uh, food and spoon must come to your mouth, right. similarly to language. And in music, people are making a similar argument. Um, one example, just to show how this would happen in, in, in real life, um, people have been trying to make sequences of, uh, of music uh, chords, and then suddenly violate uh, the expected next uh, chord. 
and see whether what happens at the point of violation is similar to what happens in the point of violation if I were to say a sentence and suddenly say something that were completely wrong. Right. And, and so people have been looking at this. I, we are looking at ways in which people produce different syntactic constructs in language, active and passive, for example. And people, and the same people producing different syntactic constructs in music, maybe a major or a minor or something like that. So we are really trying to look at the syntactic sense in, uh, in music. So, so let me now ask you to speculate a little bit, which is something I know makes you deeply uncomfortable, but we're getting towards the end, so I want to push you just a little bit. Um, so uh, it seems to me we have, we have two different uh, scenarios or two different things going on. One is we have a position where people say language is the most important Language is something which separates us from the other, right. other beings. It's, it's a distinguishing feature of mankind. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique high-level activity. And then we have another view, which is, well, there's something maybe more fundamental going on, which is, let's say, this syntactic structure, this nested mm -hmm. structure. And language is just one manifestation of these uh, mm -hmm. of these particular things. We, can, we have some kind of thought and, and, and what really separates us from, from other beings, what really distinguishes humans is that we have this ability to form these high-level representative thoughts, ideas that can be expressed in language, they can be expressed in music, they can be expressed in mathematics or logic or, or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. would, you be the, uh, would you be the sort of person who believes that thesis? Would you believe the sort of person who thinks, no, no, there's something, there's something primary of language, mm -hmm. qua language, which is actually useful mm -hmm. or, or important? Or would you believe something completely different than those things? No, I, I actually agree entirely with your, second, uh, with your second scenario. It seems to me that our mind is, has some properties of understanding hierarchies, compositionality. And these properties are expressed in, in several different ways. Yeah. Language is maybe the most beautiful, the most obvious, the, the, the instantiation of these properties that we see most during, our, you know, during the course of a day, because we make so much use of language all the time. Um, but to me, it's just one instantiation of a more general um, uh, functioning of the brain. So it's one mode, one mode it's of expression. One, it's one mode, exactly. It turns out that that one mode is an extremely, uh, is extremely, um, representative of who we are. It's extremely embedded in being human. Language is such a deep part of being human. So I'm not saying that language itself isn't amazing. I just don't think that language itself is the founding aspect upon which all these other things are built. So the thing which is the founding aspect, the kernel, is that let me just push you because that's what I'm trying to do. Is, is that representative syntactic structure? That's right. that that's what's really the kernel that's and right. it manifests itself in different ways, one of which being language. Exactly. Our mind is completely symbolic, is compositional, it has understands hierarchies. Right. And that's our mind. And and that it, it shows these properties in all these beautiful ways, language being one of them. That wasn't so bad. I didn't really push you that far, did I? I didn't <laughs> no. push you off of it. Anything else you uh, um, you you'd like to talk about that you, you thought no, I think this Covers it? Covers it. You don't, yes. you don't seem tired. You don't seem exhausted. Uh, you, no. seem, you, you seem a pretty good form. I, I, I wear people I'm out. a scientist. I talk, yeah, yeah. I, I talk for a living. Thanks a lot, Martin. This, <laughs> was, this was fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, 
This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Alan Bialystok, Victor Ferreira, Uta Frith, and Greg Haycock. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.